You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Common Descent, a podcast about paleontology, evolution, life history, and so on. This is episode 139, and our topic today is vultures. Yeah. As with previous episodes where we focus on a group of life, we're going to talk about vultures, what they are, what they do, their diversity, a bit of their evolution and fossil history. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's been a while since we've done a bird-centric episode. Very true. And it's been a little while since we've done an episode about a Spider-Man villain. (laughs) I'm very excited. Vultures have always just been high on my list of animals that I think are very neat and just cool looking. Yeah. And they are very cool. So this episode, we're going to talk about not only the diversity of vultures and their evolution and, and sort of their lifestyle and behavior, but the ways in which they are uniquely specialized to be the best they are at what they do. Yes. Just like Spider-Man says. <laughs> this episode was requested <laughs> by Jamie and Keegan. So thank you very much for that request. Yes. Before we get into the main episode discussion, we've got a few announcements. First and foremost, we have a Patreon. Our subscriptions on Patreon help to fuel the podcast and everything that we do. If you join our Patreon at various levels, you get various goodies, behind-the-scenes stuff, extra content from us. And one of the potential rewards you can receive on Patreon is your name shouted out at the top of the episode. This episode, we would like to welcome and thank James, Caroline, Noah, Sean, and Ryan. Thank you so much. Welcome, and we appreciate the support. We sure do. Another big announcement. It is summertime now. And that means we're coming up on Croc and Snake Month. Yeah! This is something we announced earlier in the year, something we are doing special for this year in celebration of our five-year anniversary. June is going to be Croc Month, July is going to be Snake Month, and all throughout those two months, we're going to have some special extra stuff going on. There's going to be special stuff on our social media. We're going to have special stuff on Discord. The Croc and Snake themes will find their way in various ways into our main episodes. And we will also have some bonus episodes discussing crocs and snakes. It's going to be a whole big extravaganza. I'm very, very excited. Not only because I'm going to get to geek out about the best group. Yeah, and crocs. uh, And then later on, we'll talk about (laughs) other stuff. But also, it'll be cool to focus in on... these conservation days and celebrate them a bit that's i'm very excited the other thing to keep your eyes out is during croc and snake month we are also going to establish some new patreon tiers where new subscribers at these levels will have the opportunity to contribute to charitable donations to croc and snake centric conservation we'll have more details about that and all the other stuff as we get closer to the dates but keep your eyes and ears out for ways that you can participate in all of our cool croc and snake stuff. Absolutely. It's going to be so much fun. One other thing to keep your ears out also in June, but completely unrelated to croc month, Jurassic World Dominion is going to come out. Yes. Croc month is not associated. No, we are not affiliated. (laughs) (laughs) 
when Jurassic World Dominion comes out, we will, of course, be doing a Silver Screen Science episode on it, so keep your ears out for that around the middle of June. But that's it for announcements today, so let us move on to the news. News! Every episode, we like to devote a chunk of airtime to discussing news from the world of paleontology, evolution, life science, and so on, the kind of things that we like to talk about here on the podcast. will start us off with some news. Happily. My first bit of news is not recent research, but it's a recent article on actually three different research papers, all looking into and trying to answer where did insect wings come from? Oh, cool. Yes. We talked about this a bit in episode 99, and also way back in episode 6. Yep. (laughs) About the many mysteries of early insect evolution. Yes, we don't actually know how insect wings evolved, and we don't know what part of the body they came from. Yeah, many hypotheses, Mm -hmm. no clear answer. And that's what this research is looking at. What part of the body and what kind of body structure did the wings likely originate from? The article is by Jeff Axt in The Scientist, and I'll list the research papers as we get to their important topics. Sure, sure. And if you want to read that article, as always, it will be in our blog post for this episode. So these papers and this article is focusing on that the origin of insect wings has a couple of big questions and main hypotheses that are supported. Uh, one of the big questions is, were wings a novel structure, a new structure, or evolved from a pre-existing structure? Mm-hmm. You know, like gills is one of the classic examples in that hypothesis. Uh, but on the side of, if they did come from a pre-existing structure, which structure they came from is debated in their two main hypotheses. One is that they evolved from the turgum, which is part of the body on the insect's back, part of the, the body wall, or from the pleura, which is more along the insect's side. Mm-hmm. The first bit of research that was mentioned was by Heather Bruce and Nipon Patel in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution back in 2020. So these aren't old research papers, but not, not this month. They were trying to determine whether crustacean leg segments were homologous to insects. Basically, do the leg segments on a crustacean's leg match up to the leg, all the little joints on an insect leg? Do they have the same evolutionary and developmental background? Yes. They looked at a shrimp-like creature that has 14 legs, each which has seven segments, and we're seeing how well those match up to the six segments of the six insect legs. They use CRISPR, so genetic research techniques to knock out certain genes and see how they matched up to the two. And they found that they do seem homologous if you count from the tip of the leg toward the body. That the tip is the same structure in both, the next section is the same, so on and so forth, which brought the question, what happened to the insect's seventh section? Mm. that would have been closest to the body. Right, the, the uppermost leg section. Exactly. That the shrimp, that the, this crustacean has, but the insects don't. Okay. It also brought up the question of what happened to the eighth leg section that many other arthropods have that is not present in either of these groups. So basically, there's a seventh section that seems like it should be ancestral to both crustaceans and insects, and an eighth section that's likely ancestral to arthropods. Right. They looked into it and found that the seventh leg section seems to be homologous to the insect pleura, that side part of the body wall 
that it basically fused into the ancestral body of insects and just became part of the body. The eighth segment seems to be part of the turgum in both this crustacean and insects, which supports a hypothesis, an older hypothesis, that these ancient leg segments joined to the body wall were absorbed back in ancestrally and may be that it may be that wings originated from these ancestral segments since these are the two spots that are often looked at so they looked at genetics specifically a gene called vestigial which is a wing gene in insects and found that it is indeed active in what was once that eighth segment so the turgum which supports the idea that the turgum is the main body part that originated insect wings. That this ancestral arthropod eighth segment that moved into the body and onto the back then originated wings. It also supports that they are evolving from a previous structure, not a novel structure. That wings right. aren't something new. They evolved from ancestral leg segments. The reason the article is interesting is because published in the exact same issue of Nature, Ecology, and Evolution by Courtney Clark Hatchell and Yoshinori Tomiyasu was another research also looking at insect wing evolution that had found support for wings being coming from both the turgum and the pleura together. Huh. Same exact issue. <laughs> Man, <laughs> this is what it looks like when a question is not settled in science. Yes, they used a very similar technique, which they learned from our previous researchers. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> it was shared with them when they visited their lab. They looked at crustaceans and red flower beetles. They were also using CRISPR techniques and also looking at the vestigial gene. And when they knocked it out, they found impaired development in the turgal plate of crustaceans and the seventh leg segment. Oh, so it's impacting both those parts of the body. Both. These genes that are typically considered to be key wing-growing genes right. were present in both body parts mm. in crustaceans, which suggests that, yes, these segments are indeed homologous to insects again, so that's support for that, but that wings might have come from a merger of these two structures, not just one of them. In the interviews, they note that though there is dispute between the two, there are also consensuses that while the first bit of research holds that the eighth leg segment, the turgum, is the main and likely only source of the wing development, this research definitely agrees that that's probably the main, but disagrees that it's the only, and that there may even be a third body (laughs) segment according to their more recent studies, but they still haven't settled that question between these two research. And then at the tail end of the article, they mentioned a research from last year, 2021, by Sarah Fisher et al. in the Proceedings of the Royal Society of B Biological Sciences that found wing development genes in a number of body parts and outgrowths not considered to be wing originating. Huh. So these wing genes might not be as... They might not be the best thing to look at (laughs) oh man it's a mess and i love it that's a fascinating collection of and it's so cool because so often in our news we focus on a new study Mm -hmm. and we always try to emphasize that yeah this is only part of the scientific investigation of whatever question it is it's really cool to get the chance to compare a few and say this one finds this main origin for insect wings possibly 
This one finds, actually, we have some evidence that maybe a couple places. And then a third one goes, well, if you're looking for that kind of evidence, you're going to find it all over the place. So maybe that's not the best approach. And all this to say that insect wing evolution probably was pretty complex. Yes. And we're still figuring out where best to look. Mm-hmm. Like We know what the question is, and we know what kind of answer we're looking for, but we're still working out the best path to get to that ultimate answer. Well, it's I was fascinated by this immediately just because we were using crustaceans so much yeah. to look into it, since that would give us in- information about the common ancestor between insects and crustaceans, which is not where my brain would have went to study shrimp Mm -hmm. to learn about insect wings seems very roundabout, but it makes sense when you're trying to figure out where did these structures originate from? And yes, the, that final bit about the evidence being used might not be as reliable. They were quoted saying those findings of the, the, of the third study don't support either hypothesis. Right. (laughs) Like don't actually do not, uh, 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 add to either one of those it may be that we need more data and a new way of looking at it entirely yeah and that's fun to know because whenever you have this these situations where it's yeah we don't we have a bunch of hypotheses to answer this question we don't know which one's right we don't have a good answer to it yet the question inevitably comes up of well why not like Mm -hmm. you've been studying it for so long and the answer is we don't actually know insects well enough yet. Yes. We're still working on our understanding of how their bodies work. Well, and this is one of those where a, a breakthrough finding could be the thing that busts it open, like finally finding a transitional fossil mm-hmm. with early develop, developing wings. Yeah. That could be the thing that makes it go, well, obviously it's this body structure. You right. can see it. Very cool. Well, hey, speaking of arthropod evolution and appendages... I've got a study about trilobites and how they mated. Ooh. Yeah, this is pretty cool. This is research in the journal Geology by Sarah Lasso and Javier Ortega Hernandez. And we will link in the blog post to an article in Live Science by Laura Gegel. Trilobites are those uber-famous sea-dwelling arthropods of the Paleozoic. We talked about them in episode 82. We know a ton about trilobites. They are extremely well known from the fossil record, but we don't know a ton about their mating habits because that's hard to know from fossils of things that are three to five hundred million years old. Yeah, that's the case for most fossil organs. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This study finds some interesting new evidence from a particular unusual specimen of a trilobite called Olenoides serratus. This is a pretty well-known trilobite from the Burgess Shale, episode 89 which makes it Middle Cambrian, about 508 million years old. Like I said, the authors are describing an unusual specimen of this species that they found at the Royal Ontario Museum, and what makes it unusual first and foremost is that it preserves legs. Oh. Trilobites had legs, but most fossils preserve the hard upper shell and the hard parts of the body. The legs tend not to fossilize. In fact, the main author was quoted in the Live Science article as saying that there are about 20,000 known species of trilobites, and 38 of them are known from specimens that preserve legs. Wow. It is very rare to find trilobite legs in fossils. Well, because they have very tiny, delicate legs, is what I always think of them as. Yes, well, they're like a horseshoe crab legs. So this specimen that they studied 
Not only is it unusual for its legs, but it has unusual legs. <laughs> they noted that about you know, middle towards the back of the body, this specimen had two pairs, so one leg on either side, of unusual legs that were shorter and narrower than the legs farther up the body and farther back of the body. That if you didn't know better, you might think that they were just deformed little legs or that they were in the process of regrowing a leg. But these authors find these look like they are fully developed, just smaller and narrower. And they also don't have spines, mm -hmm. which trilobite legs tend to have, uh, which are thought to be good for shredding food and such. So to figure out what these little little leg structures are about, they compared with modern arthropods, including horseshoe crabs. And found a very similar structure in horseshoe crabs, which are claspers. Yeah. This is a kind of structure. We've talked about this with like sharks, for example, mm -hmm. episode 48, that a lot of animals have claspers, which are used during mating to hold on to the mate. Yes. Yeah. This is how you can denote a male versus female in horseshoe crabs. Is the males have these little hooky front arms specifically for latching onto the shell of the female. Yes. These are further back on the body. And the authors suggest that these might have been used to hold on to the, the spines toward the back of the female trilobite. Interesting. So that the trilobite would have kind of been on top, but a little farther back. Sort of the way we think of vertebrate animals uh, in a mating position. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're wondering why an invertebrate has to do that, right? these animals aren't thought to have had internal fertilization. The females release the eggs and then males fertilize them outside the body. But positioning in that way with the male right there behind the female allows them to make sure that those eggs are in the right position and the male's in the right position to fertilize them quickly and efficiently. Yes. It's, this is a once again with horseshoe crabs because they are also external fertilizers. That's a big part of it is that it puts the male in the right position to fertilize, but it also ensures that that male is almost certainly the one fertilizing. Yes. And they'll fight for it. Yes. They'll like try to push each other out of the way. And now maybe trilobites were doing that. I, That's I would. I love that image. Much harder to know. <laughs> and they actually talk about that in the article. They're like, we can't. We don't know that for sure. But this is really interesting. Number one, because this is the first report of specialized limbs for mating purposes in trilobites. We knew that they had limb specialization for, like, feeding purposes, but we hadn't found an example like this. It also suggests that this familiar kind of mating behavior goes all the way back to the Cambrian. So this is a behavior that has been around for a long time. And to tie into a thing that you just said a little while ago, Will, the authors point out that there was another specimen of the same species that was also well-preserved that did not show evidence of clasping legs. Aha! Likely, they think, a female. Yes! Which means that this also, if that's the case, becomes a very rare example of direct evidence of sexual dimorphism in fossils in general, but in trilobites. If that's true, now we have a surefire way to say that's a male, that's a female. That's so awesome. You know, in the extremely rare cases that we get legs preserved at all. But yes. still, that's mm -hmm. a pretty cool thing to have. Man, that's that's so interesting because it, it makes complete sense. You know, just for, you're a, a typically bottom dwelling. You know, there were swimming trilobites, but typically scuttling around ocean and, and sea and waterway floors, which is very much some, what we see in horseshoe crabs and other arthropods. So it makes sense that you would also have 
some of the same techniques of latching on and having special structures. Yeah, yeah. it's cool to get to see them. Uh, I'm I'd be fascinated to know how they differ from clasping limbs of other arthropods. Like are, how how different are a trilobites or how similar are they to anyone else's? Yeah, and that might be related to what they're clasping onto. Yes. Right, trilobites have spines on them. Mm-hmm. It also makes me wonder: Do we see differences in the spines? Mm-hmm. Like, do are female spines going to be different from males? If that's what they're clasping onto, yeah, are they going to be a different structure? And I don't know that they mentioned that in the paper at all. I didn't notice it. Yeah, you, I mean, you could get a lot of crazy specialization. Yeah, with something like this that's so driven by sexual reproduction, uh, it also just brings up the point to my mind of if legs are so rare in trilobites and if we're only now finding specialized legs for mating like this, and you mentioned that we've seen others for feeding, but I bet there were some trilobites with really weird, like there's like a praying mantis trilobite or like with weird specialized stuff that we just aren't seeing. Could be. And oh, I love that concept in my brain so much. (laughs) Find more trilobites. Yes. Well, speaking of extremely rare finds, in this case for a specific area, this next bit of news is about the smallest sauropod in Australia, which sounds like a kid's book. It does. The little sauropod that could. This is about a young sauropod found in Australia, which turns out to be the first juvenile and therefore smallest sauropod yet found on the continent. Oh, cool. I guess it's a fossil, so it's the little sauropod that couldn't. Yeah, that that used to. Sorry. This research is by Samantha Rigby et al. in the Journal of Vertebrates Paleontology, and the article is by Evram Yazgin in Cosmos Magazine. This research is about a fossil found at the Winton Formation in Northeast Australia. This is an Upper Cretaceous fossil site, about 95 million years old. Used to be uh, rivers and freshwater pools and swamps and estuaries and stuff like that. Sauropod bones are very well known from this site. They're the most abundant vertebrate fossil from this fossil site. Oh, cool. Also, if this is your first episode of our podcast, sauropods are the dinosaurs with the big column legs and the long necks and the long tails. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> but only sub-adult and adult specimens have just been described so far. Mm, this no, is the, no little, little ones. Yes, no young ones. This is the first juvenile from the site and for Australia. Cool. They've nicknamed it Ollie. Naturally. That sounds like a very Aussie name. Right? It is therefore the smallest species sauropod specimen known from Australia. Uh, It still likely would have measured about 11 meters long and 4.2 tons. Just a little tiny sauropod. (laughs) So this is still a sauropod that would have weighed in with adult elephants today. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The remains they have do seem to belong to a single individual. It included backbone, ribs, uh, shoulder bones, and a number of leg bones. Also one of the thumb claws from the foot. Neat. Right? They were diagnostic enough to designate this as a juvenile diamantinosaurus, which is only the third specimen known from the species. Oh, that's also exciting. Yes. So this is a group of sauropods known as titanosaurs, which we've mentioned before. This is a group famous from Africa and South America and Australia. Yep. Episode 101 for more on that. Adults of this species are known to have reached 15 meters and probably like 15 to 20 tons. So, so slightly bigger. So a bit bigger. Than slightly Ollie bigger here. than everything else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> These are big animals. The fact that Ollie is a juvenile let them make some interesting observations compared to even just the two other specimens, the two other adult specimens of this species. 
Uh, first, the way they were able to determine it was juvenile is that many of the bones are unfused. They're not finished developing. Yes, they haven't fused into their adult form, uh, which happens in our body and happens in many other animals. They noticed a number of features that were either present in Ollie and not in the adults or vice versa, showing a ontogenetic development that they were not born as carbon copies of the adults, which we suspected. Sure. You know, that's pretty normal in most vertebrates, but it's still interesting to see what differences there are and how a young sauropod of this species was different than the adults. One of the obvious ones is there were less well-defined or sometimes entirely missing muscle attachment sites. So the areas where the muscle attaches to the bone will often leave scarring and rough areas. These were reduced and some of them were just missing in Ollie that were very well noted in the adults. The limb bones are also narrower than the adults, which is not too weird for a young animal, but they were able to note that the leg bones seem to be growing more rapidly than the back and shoulder bones, which they described meant that Ollie's limbs would have been very long for its body. Yeah, like gangly teenage stage. Yes, and that Ollie <laughs> would have had to grow into its legs. So it would have looked weird with these long, thin legs compared to the adults, <laughs> that it would have grown its massive body to match as uh, it got bigger. Just like the last news, it's always fascinating how much a single new specimen can teach us about a species. And I mean, as paleontologists, you learn to get excited anytime something juvenile is found. Absolutely. Anytime you have a young individual, you know you're going to learn stuff about this species that you wouldn't otherwise know. Because there's just no other way to know how animals change as they grow, and they always change as they grow. Yes. It's such an important part of their life history. Well, and it's, it, the juvenile stage of life is such a fleeting brief moment for so, most species that when you're young and growing is typically only a fraction of your total lifespan. Right. And even if it is a large part of your lifespan, like a lot of dinosaurs took a long time to grow yes. up, they're changing throughout. Mm -hmm. So you're rarely remaining the same for a long period of time. So anytime we can get those early stages, it's a big deal. And, uh, and I, the abstract mentioned that they then compared Ollie to other juvenile sauropods from around the world to get an idea how, its growth compares to other sauropods' early development and kind of slotted in. I, I, they got into more detail than I was able to follow as to the different growth patterns of all the different sauropods. Mm -hmm. But they're using it now to try to get a better understanding of sauropod early development or, you know, young development in general. Very cool. Well, as we know, sauropods were the largest herbivores of all time, but at the end of the Cretaceous, they all disappeared. True. In fact, after the end of the Cretaceous, there was a major lack of large herbivores. True. My next bit of news studies that ah. and what it meant for ecosystems that mega herbivores were gone. Mm. Yeah, we this didn't is plan this. Well, we plan uh, all the time. <laughs> this is research by Rinsky Onstein et al. in Proceedings of the Royal Society B, and we will link in the blog post to a press release in phys.org via the German Center for Integrative Biodiversity Research. As we have discussed on the podcast over and over and over again, the end of the Cretaceous was a bad time. Yep. Cretaceous Mass Extinction, Episode 5, 
drove lots and lots of things to extinction, but notably, as is the case with a lot of mass, mass extinctions, large herbivores vanished. Following the end Cretaceous extinction, there is what has been called the Paleocene mega herbivore gap. <laughs> that is, so mega herbivores are animals over a thousand kilograms that eat plants. They were missing after this mass extinction, and that gap lasted for about 25 million years until the late Eocene when mammals started to evolve those big body shapes, things like Dinocerata and early Perissodactyls, as we discussed a bit in episode 129. This, of course, leads to lots of important questions, like what is what happens to your ecosystems when you lose the most important herbivores? Who's eating your plants? And indeed, this study was asking the question, how did this impact plants? So they specifically focused on palms, and what they did is they wanted to basically recreate an estimated evolutionary history of palms. So they first uh, used genetic information for all living palms to create a phylogenetic tree, an evolutionary tree of how they're all related and when certain features may have evolved. And they also used some palm fossils. I think they said they used about 70 different fossils. Ooh to inform what early palms were like, to sort of calibrate their reconstruction. And putting this all together, they came up with an estimate of what palm evolution has looked like over time. This found a couple of interesting things. For one, back in the Mesozoic, before the Cretaceous mass extinction, their estimate confirms that palms back then had lots of spines and thorns on their trunks and leaves, but that after the Cretaceous extinction, during that mega herbivore gap, spikes and thorns became much less common, that these diminished, which they said makes total sense because those are defensive structures. Yes, exactly. Those are structures you use to ward off big herbivores from eating too much or eating the things you don't want them to eat. So it makes total sense, not only that they diminish during this herbivore gap, but that they return closer to previous levels starting in the late Eocene, when big herbivores show up again. Ah, these guys again. Yep, uh, we, we know how to deal with you. Another thing they noted is that back in the Mesozoic, it was common for these palms to have large fruits and seeds, and they expected that this would also diminish during the mega-herbivore gap, because large herbivores are great at dispersing larger seeds and fruits. Yeah, they can swallow them. They can swallow them, yeah, absolutely. But... Their reconstruction found that the large fruits did not decrease. In fact, on the whole, the size of fruits increased during the mega herbivore gap. Weird. And they interpreted that, that this means a couple of things. Number one, that large herbivores are not required to disperse large seeds and fruits. That at least some plants can get along without them. That there would have been plenty of small mammals and birds that apparently were able to do the same job but also that there may have been other pressures favoring large seeds and fruits. Uh, they note, for example, that at this time, we also see the expansion of denser forests, like rainforests, which makes total sense if you don't have elephant and larger sized things clearing space, your plants can grow closer together. Mm -hmm. And they note that denser forests favor larger fruits and seeds and plants. They did not note why denser forests favor larger seeds and fruits and plants, so I don't know. Maybe we'll ask Allie the next time we talk to her. Yeah, absolutely. But they said that the ecosystem structure may have been putting selective pressures on them. 
So this is interesting because it gives us some insights into how the loss of giant herbivores affected plants and plant ecosystems. It also establishes a method for investigating these questions, that this method might be able to be used for other groups of plants, even other animals, Mm -hmm. because, of course, there are other impacts that we can investigate. They point out that loss of mega herbivores can change what was going on with their competitors or with their associated parasites or symbionts Mm -hmm. or with scavengers. Hey, that's a topical note for this podcast episode. Hey. And also important for today. Yes. Right. We are in a time where a lot of our large herbivores are struggling or already gone. Mm -hmm. So this is helpful potentially for understanding how these changes happen. Now, they do make some important caveats at the end where they point out some of the things that their analysis might be lacking or that might be missing, which is always important to know, especially when we're doing these estimates of evolutionary history. They point out that if there were, for example plants that were specialists for living alongside mega herbivores, if those specialists went extinct, those might be missing from the analysis. Yes. Because they didn't leave any descendants, and if we don't have them in the fossil record, which isn't great, we won't know that they're there. Mm -hmm. So we might be missing some parts of the impact. They also point out that there were some discrepancies between their genetic estimates and the fossil record. That their genetic estimates predicted larger species would be rarer than the fossil record indicates they are. Okay. So they're more common in fossils than we would have guessed based just on the genetics. So this isn't a perfect analysis. There are places where we might be missing stuff or little oversights, which is always going to be the case, especially when you're dealing with fossil stuff and things that are 65 million years old and going. Yep. But a really interesting starting point, at least, for investigating some of these evolutionary questions. That is very cool. And it's it's a very, like you said, important question for today, since this is something that comes up very often when people talk about avocado seeds mm-hmm. and those weird fruits we have today that don't seem to fit with the environment and herbivores we find them, find around them. Right. And the fun thing is, if you go Googling that, you'll find a bunch of scientists saying that's not actually true. Yes, exactly. That there are animals that disperse those seeds that we overlooked. And yes. so there's all this complicated relationships with these large seeded plants. So it's fun to be able to say, see that while it may seem like the obvious answer, it's not how it always goes. Mm-hmm. Even if those large seeds were originally evolved for large herbivores, it may turn out that the herbivore is not necessary or there's other advantages that came up along the way mm-hmm. that makes the large herbivore kind of superfluous to the seed as it is now functioning, which isn't what we expect, but it's what seems to be happening. And that's fascinating. Yeah. So I'll be interested to see if this spawns a bunch more research on different groups of plants or maybe insects to see what was going on during this herbivore gap. Yes. Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'd be fascinated. Well, this news section was very invertebrate and plants heavy Weird for our podcast. We only talked a little bit about dinosaurs. So what do you say we spend the rest of the episode talking about dinosaurs? Only if they're super tough looking and really, really weird. They're so cool. Vultures are so cool. (laughs) After the break, we are going to get into our main discussion about vultures, their life habits, and how vultures became and maintain being so darn good at being vultures. I'm ready.
Vultures are scavengers. Mm-hmm. It is the th- it is the most famous thing about them. Uh, if you know if you don't know anything else about vultures, I'm willing to bet you know that they're scavengers. <laughs> they eat carrion. They feed on dead stuff. Not only that, they might be the most famous scavengers in the world. Yeah. No. I mean, I I, I they are pretty much universally used as like the image of there's dead stuff here. Yes. Exactly. They are kind of synonymous with scavenging and dead stuff the image the the iconic image of birds circling in the air signifying that there is something dead down on the ground carrying is about yes the uh, the image of a bunch of birds usually that sort of hunched posture gathered around a dead thing like vultures are scavengers that is the thing that we know about them but they're also unique among scavengers not only are vultures very specialized for a scavenging lifestyle, they are dedicated scavengers. They are widely considered, most vultures, obligate scavengers. Which is weird. Meaning they must scavenge. If they're not eating dead stuff, they're not getting enough nutrition to survive. I have heard, I've seen various places refer to vultures as the only vertebrates known to be obligate scavengers. I did see at least one place that said, uh, that added the caveat outside of the ocean, (laughs) which is probably a very important caveat as usual for most things. That makes sense. But yeah, vultures are a vertebrate animal, right? They're birds. They are, they have bones and all that, but generally they persist on a diet of mainly carrion, dead bodies. This feels like when we talked about in Sanguivores that the vampire bat is the only vertebrate like pure sanguivore pure sanguivore because that's such a weird thing to do like it's very odd for a verbit to only drink blood it's also very odd for them to only eat dead stuff yes there are lots of scavenging animals in the world and there are a lot of big ones we talked in episode 109 all about hyenas Mm -hmm. but even though hyenas have a reputation as scavengers they are perfectly capable hunters yes like most animals that scavenge are also hunting vultures do not exclusively scavenge, but they are mainly, predominantly scavengers. They are also pretty diverse, more so than you might expect. Vultures are found all over the world, on several different continents. There are, as of this recording, who knows if this will change in the future, but there are 23 species of living vultures. That's a good number of there to be living things of. Right? Yeah. That's a pretty good... I like that. That's a That ballpark number of species, That's I like that for some reason. No one's going to get this reference. <laughs> only you only you and me are going to know that you're talking about crocs. <laughs> for some vulture examples, here in the U.S., we have turkey vultures, which are, live in this area. We have them where we live. Oh, yeah. We see them soar, yeah. soaring around. There are the Egyptian vultures, for example, which live in North Africa, Europe, and Asia. And then there's lappet-faced vultures in uh, throughout Africa, which are one of the vultures you classically think of, like, gathered around a dead zebra out on the African savanna. Yeah. Here's a really interesting note about the diversity of vultures. Those three species I just mentioned are not related to each other. <laughs> they belong to three different groups. Vultures are not one group of birds. What we think of as a vulture has evolved convergently multiple times. So before we get more into the anatomy and lifestyle of vultures, let's talk about the diversity of what we call vultures. 
We've discussed this sort of thing before. Episode 70 was about convergent evolution. We discussed this in Cats in episode 93, how saber-toothed cats have evolved multiple times. Vultures have evolved multiple times. Which, you know, makes sense. We, we've talked about diff- the same thing evolving in different groups, but the fact that this is weird for a vertebrate to be doing this, and multiple ones did it! Yep, multiple groups of birds. On the one hand, we've got New World vultures, which are the vultures that live in the New World, which is North and South America. These all belong to the family Cathartidae within the Cathartiforms. There are seven living species, which include yellow-headed vultures, black vultures, king vultures, the turkey vultures that we mentioned, as well as the two living species of condors. Right. Within New World vultures. Uh, This is a group that uh, formerly it was thought that New World vultures were closely related to storks, but more recent evidence seems to suggest that they are closer to Axipitridae, which are hawks, eagles, kites, that group of birds. They're near predatory birds. Yes. And they are often considered birds of prey. Yes. I've seen them grouped that way. On the other side of the world, we have the Old World vultures across Europe, Asia, and Africa. These are within Axipitridae. So in amongst the hawks and the eagles and the kites. There are two different groups of vultures within Old World vultures. Gepetinae, three species. Bearded vultures, palm nut vultures, and Egyptian vultures. And then a separate group, which I've seen referred to as Gypinae and also Aegypianae, which are 13 species that include Cenarius vultures, griffin vultures, the lappet-faced vultures I mentioned in the African savanna, and a handful more. So what we think of as vultures is actually multiple different groups of birds that share features for a similar lifestyle. Yeah. Generally speaking... Some of the things that typify vultures, they tend to be pretty large. They tend to be pretty big birds. They often have those featherless heads, featherless faces, sometimes heads, sometimes whole necks are featherless. Sometimes they're fuzzy, but not big poofy feathers. Other times they're just naked skin. Yeah, just that wrinkly skin. They tend to have big, broad wings, and they tend to be scavengers. They tend to eat carrion. But, and here where we get to one of the things that makes vultures so interesting scavenging is not an easy lifestyle. Mm-mm. It's very easy, I think, to think of scavenging as, like, the cheating way. You know, those who can't hunt scavenge, you know, anyone can do it. Because we think of, like, mammalian carnivores. Yes. Like, a lion is a hunter, but if it can't get food, it can just scavenge. Yeah, it, it feels like, and it is often presented as, the lazy option. Yes. That if you're not going to kill it yourself, well, you'll just wait until it's someone else kills it or it dies of natural causes and then you'll eat it. Right. But if you're mostly scavenging, you have to deal with a number of issues. For one, scavenging is a very unpredictable lifestyle. You Carrying dead bodies are not evenly spaced across the landscape. You don't know when or where you're going to get your next meal. That's the biggest benefit to hunting is that you know where the dead body is because you killed it. Yeah, you made it. You are the one that caused it. If you're scavenging, you're waiting around yes. for, something, for something to drop dead. <laughs> Scavenging is also tough because there's a lot of things that scavenge. So there's heavy competition for scavenging, right? If you're out in Africa, you've got lions and hyenas and a whole bunch of birds and other stuff. And probably the biggest, most obvious problem with scavenging is that carcasses are hotbeds of disease. Oh, yeah. Bacteria, viruses, they are unhealthy. We don't eat them for a reason. We cook our food for a reason. These are rotten piles of meat. So, vultures across all the groups tend to have a bunch of really 
particular adaptations that allow them to be dedicated scavengers. A collection of adaptations we don't see in other animals. Vultures, um, vultures are so cool. They're, they're really neat. I've gotten to see some up close because of people I know that work with them. And they're very cool birds. <laughs> Probably the most important adaptation that vultures have for a life of scavenging is not a unique vulture adaptation, and it is the fact that they can fly. Uh, yeah, that, yeah. Being able to fly is so helpful, because this is how vultures hunt. But hunt, you know, they go looking for food, they forage, by soaring high overhead and looking out across the landscape for food. Vultures tend to have big, broad wings that are really good for soaring. They can cover massive areas. I found one study referenced that tracked foraging in cape vultures. So I think they had, like, satellite tracking on these vultures and tracked them over eight months and found that they typically were covering a range of 480,000 square kilometers. Wow. So just these massively wide-ranging areas. Well, and they're they're really good at that flapless. Yes. That soaring on wind currents, on uplifts. Low energy. They're very efficient, so that they are not flapping constantly. They just look like a, like a gliding... Like a kite. Yes. They're just motionlessly moving through the air. Yep. Saving as much energy as possible in between meals. Vultures also tend to have great eyesight, which is also, we see that in a lot of birds of prey. New world vultures, uh, the ones over on our side of the the globe, also are known for having a really good sense of smell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So eyesight, obviously great for spotting, carrying down on the ground. Smell is especially helpful if what you're flying over is forests. And a lot of vultures... Uh, are flying over forest or even rainforests. Yep. Uh, there are vultures in the Amazon region down in South America. Another thing that being flyer efficient flyers allows vultures to do is they can follow migratory mammals. Like <laughs> while herds of animals are moving up and down the landscape, vultures can just follow along and wait. <laughs> <laughs> just fishing them following me like how are you all doing down there? Everything good? How, how's Jerry <laughs> hanging up? Last time I checked in, Jerry wasn't doing so well. Update me on that. We're all here to find out how Jerry's we're, doing. Yeah, we all want we want to be here. We're all for really Jerry. curious. <laughs> we signed a card. <laughs> Another thing that is really helpful for vultures is that they tend to be large. In fact, and I this I had never really thought of it this way. Vultures include some of the largest bird, the largest flying birds. In the world. To go with a common example, again, turkey vultures. Turkey vultures tend to have wingspans of around two meters or six feet wide, and they tend to weigh up to a couple kilograms or more. Yeah. Which is several pounds, which is big for a bird. Well, it's it's one of those where, especially if you see like a, a turkey or a black vulture, they don't look just massive when their wings are all folded up. But like, a chicken is a decent-sized bird. Like Yeah, most we, birds are not big. Most birds are very can sit in the palm of your hand. Most birds are tiny. <laughs> That's a decent-sized flying animal. And then on the extreme scale of things, condors <laughs> can, be, can have wingspans over 3 meters wide, 10 feet, and can weigh over 10 kilograms, so over 20 pounds. That is a New World Vultures example. There are also Old World Vultures that get to similar sizes, like the Cenarius Vultures and the Himalayan Vultures. Being big has a bunch of benefits for a scavenger. Number one, in particular for vultures, bigger is better for flying, yes. generally. 
because you have more mass, you are faster in the sky. It's easy. It's more efficient for a glider to have a larger body. Yeah, more surface area on your wings. Yep. Being big also means that vultures can eat a lot of food and then store up reserves in their body. They can make a more efficient use of each meal they find. And it also means that they can last long periods between meals dealing with that unpredictability again. All right, well, I ate a huge meal and now I'm good for a while. Also, being a big scavenger means you can push away smaller scavengers. You can bully people. Yeah, vultures are extremely good at this. Like, vultures will... Uh, of course, they'll push away smaller birds around a carcass. A group of vultures can also scare away lions or hyenas. Like, they can be really protective of their carcasses. Well, it's one of those things that birds just kind of have to them where it's, you know, a crow is not a terrifying bird. But if a bunch of crows come at me, yeah, I'm going inside. <laughs> like, I don't want to mess with birds. I don't want to mess with flying knives on the faces of these ants. Like, they're creepy. And speaking of that... Vultures also tend to have strong beaks for tearing flesh uh, because that's part of the job. Also, very famously, uh, as we mentioned before, vultures tend to have bald faces, sometimes entirely bald heads, sometimes bald necks. And by bald, we mean they don't have feathers. Mm -hmm. They are missing feathers on that part of the body, which is relatively unusual for birds. A lot of birds have featherless legs. Birds, uh, of course, beaks tend to be featherless. But the whole head and neck is unusual, uh, and it is a very iconic image of a vulture. One of the explanations for why they have bald heads and necks is that it's helpful for staying clean. If you are rooting around in a carcass, and indeed sometimes sticking your entire head inside the body cavity of a decaying corpse, being covered in feathers is a breeding ground for bacteria and infection and stuff. So not having feathers can help that part of the body stay clean. I've also seen it pointed out that going back to the energy efficient topic, having all that skin exposed is really helpful for regulating temperature Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because if they're too warm, they can expose the head and neck and radiate a bunch of heat. But if they want to conserve heat, they can just pull their head and neck into their fluffy feathery shoulders and retain a lot of it. That makes sense. So it allows them to be more efficient at managing their input and output of thermal energy, which goes back to that, yeah, you're trying to be as efficient as possible, making the most use of the unpredictable resources that you're getting. Well, and and that's one of those features that it so beautifully makes perfect sense in both scenarios. And you can absolutely see how one could have started the evolutionary pre- pressure yeah. And then found out, so like, oh, also, your, your cooling system means you don't get sick as often. Yeah, great. So, double pressure. Keep it up. And that's that's cool. It's also something that, and I don't know if this is just what it seems to me off the top of my head, but that seems like a really great feature for birds. Because birds seem to have a really easy time pulling their heads and necks into their feathery body. Yes. Like, they're really good at folding their necks and heads in. Yeah, they got a very mobile neck. Yeah. If that wouldn't work quite as well if it was, you know, mammals or Mm -hmm. something like that. Speaking of maintaining your heat efficiently, uh, another thing that vultures are famous for doing is peeing and pooping on themselves. Yeah, all over their legs. All over their legs. I've only seen this, I've seen some places that say it is a thing that vultures do, and then I've seen other places that say it is a New World vultures thing. Yes, I've heard it for sure with 
New World vultures. Yes. I'm not actually sure how widespread it is. But, yeah, the idea here being that if you wet yourself, literally, you benefit from evaporative cooling. Yeah. When fluid dries, it takes some heat with it. I've also seen it pointed out that this might be helpful for keeping disease away. Yeah. That you're, you know, the bacteria doesn't want this on them any more than you do. Yeah, that it's sterilizing <laughs> it. Well, and I've heard it, uh, that was one of the fun facts for, I believe it was black vultures who have very white feet. And that the reason they're white is because of all of the dried urea. Gross. That it's, their feet are not actually white. It's because they pee on their feet so regularly. Oh, man. <laughs> that it has colored their feet. And it works for them. Yeah. So, so next time you're in a survival scenario. Now you know what to do. Get some urea. <laughs> Get a vulture and squeeze it all over your legs. <laughs> now, while we're on this subject, the other thing that vultures are very famously well adapted for is dealing with disease. Mm -hmm. Vultures have an incredible ability to eat really nasty stuff and be okay. The kind of stuff that it, like if we tried to eat what vultures eat, we would get sick and we would probably die <sighs> before too long. Because like we said, carcasses are just full of bacteria and viruses and terrible things. Just the ultimate Petri dish. Vultures are well adapted to deal with this on the inside. Uh, for one thing, they have extremely acidic stomachs. So in humans, uh, to my knowledge, stomach acid pH, so pH scale, low numbers are more acidic, high numbers are more basic. Human stomach acid pH tends to range between 2 and 3 on average. Vultures tends to be more 1 to 2. They have very acidic, deadly to a lot of bacteria and viruses. And also, I came across a study that looked at their gut biota and found that vultures just are home to a lot of really horrible bacteria that do well in their guts. Yeah. Uh, particularly Clostridia and Fusobacteria, which are dangerous to most animals. But inside vultures, it seems they're probably helping them break down their food, and the vultures are just resistant to the toxicity of these bacteria. Like, the paper that I saw said that you don't see this in things like hyenas. Yeah. This is something particular to vultures, although they did say that these bacteria are also common in the guts of crocodilians. Yeah, I was about, I was about to wonder. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> so they are doing something very similar to crocs in that regard. Yeah, well, because the things you've listed so far are the same... So a lot of the same tactics that crocs use to handle rotten food and yes. just be able to eat every part of the carcass. <laughs> so vultures have all of these specializations for scavenging. They are dedicated scavengers with adaptations for getting around a lot of the issues of scavenging. Well, and I, I remember another thing that would be mentioned. Uh, I saw this at a, a bird demonstration at a nature center that uh, vultures are also very terrestrial they're very good on the ground mm -hmm. uh they don't have perching feet like no they don't typically have grasping mm -hmm. feet like you think of for a bird of prey they have walking around feet like a chicken does uh but even more so that when they brought out the vulture it took encouragement to get it to take flight again like it would just <laughs> hop over to the person and just walk around Okay. While like the hawk would go from 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 and like flutter right. a vulture from perch very to perch happy on the ground yeah it'd be, they'd have to be like no we have to offer it good food to get it to fly up to the perch otherwise it just <laughs> won't because it doesn't want to now even with these shared features there is actually a surprising amount of variability in vulture feeding behaviors so with regards to eating carrion some vultures target soft tissue so they're sticking their heads inside and grabbing organs and stuff 
Others go after skin and muscle and tendons, and they're sort of tearing the tough stuff off. Others are known to just hang around the carcass and peck, pick up the little pieces. They're not pulling anything off. They're picking up little pieces on or around the carcass. And these different groups tend to have different anatomy to their skulls Which makes and sense. their beaks. So vultures are even specialized within carrion feeding behaviors. And then special note goes to bearded vultures. Yes, my favorite. Uh, in the old world, bearded vultures are notoriously the only vultures, I think the only birds, and probably one of the only animals in general that are specialists in eating bone. Yep. Bearded vultures eat bone. Most of their diet is bone. Yeah. Uh, and they're actually in the habit of they will get bones, fly up high in the gr- in the air, and drop the bones onto the ground to break them into swallowable pieces. Yep. <laughs> yeah, bearded vultures are super cool. Yeah, bearded vultures have always been one of my favorite of the vultures because that's super cool. Also, they look awesome. They do, though. they got like a mane. Yeah, they've got so much patterning on their face. Uh, they've also got a cool other name. It's like Limergear. Uh, which I think is like the regional oh, interesting. name for them, which came up because of an autocorrect on my phone long ago, which is why I learned about these animals. <laughs> <laughs> so there's all sorts of different varieties of vulture. Also, while we're on the subject, vultures look awesome. They do. They look so cool. Like the griffin vulture, you see it and you go, yeah, no, that's a griffin vulture. Yeah. There's like no a... other name that would fit for that. <laughs> King vultures mm-hmm. have like the patterning on the face. Condors are awesome looking. Vultures are really striking, distinctive birds. Yeah. Oh, they're awesome. On the note of different uh, food habits, we mentioned that vultures are primarily scavengers for the most part, but that's not 100% what they do. Uh, vultures are, of course, known to eat live prey. Uh, basically anything will grab something living if it thinks it can take it. Mm-hmm. Some African species are known to be particularly good hunters. Really? There are a couple that uh, actually do have more flexible talons and do do a bit of extra hunting. Terrifying. There are some vultures that are known to eat fruit, especially palm nut vultures, which are one of the smaller group of old world vultures. I've seen references to other old world vultures eating grass to supplement their diet. And Egyptian vultures, another one of the small old world group, not that they're small birds, but the the less inclusive group, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are known to eat eggs. Uh, particularly of other birds. And if you go searching for Egyptian vulture egg eating, you will find notes about tool use because they'll grab pebbles and smash the pebbles into the eggs. Kind of like if you think of a secretary bird. Yeah. Will like smash lizards to, onto the ground to kill them. Egyptian vultures will grab rocks and smash them down onto eggs to break the eggs open. Cool. So add tool use to the list of stuff that vultures do. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, these are very cool birds. Oh, man. Well, that's, it's neat. It's fascinating that we have a multiple groups of birds, you know, some of which are closely related, mm-hmm. uh, but still different groups of birds that have taken on a lifestyle that we do not commonly see in birds or vertebrates in general. Yeah. But have also done it in a diverse variety of ways. Yeah. With some supplementing that diet in vastly different techniques. Yes. This this is one of the takeaways of this episode discussion. Vultures are more diverse than you think they are. It's, I love it so much. Oh. And because vultures are so 
unusual and so unique and so specialized. They also serve a, a, a unique function in ecosystems. Vultures are, to put it very simply, the best scavengers around. <laughs> they are really good at this. I saw a reference to one study that experimentally placed carcasses uh, so they would have a carcass, they'd put it somewhere where they could observe it and watch what happens to it. They placed a bunch of these carcasses in, uh, in the Serengeti and observed them and found that vultures consumed 84% of the carcasses before any mammalian scavengers arrived. Yeah, wow. That by the time mammals got there, the carcasses were mostly gone. But I was expecting them to get there first. I was not expecting them to take such a bulk of the carcass. They are very quick at it. Wow. Uh, I also found another study from here in the U.S., this was in 2017, that observed, uh, experimentally put carcasses out where vultures couldn't get them or wouldn't get them. And they found that if vultures didn't show up, 80% of their carcasses just didn't get eaten by vertebrates. Huh. Now, they do point out that those were very, this is a specific study under specific time of the year, specific circumstances. So that might vary over time, the yes. exact number. But the point being that not only are vultures quick at getting to stuff, but they find carrion that other animals might just never find otherwise. Yeah, that that others, the rest of the the animals that would be happy to scavenge are not as are are so not good at it. Nope. That they just miss certain carcasses potentially. Yeah. No, they're too busy hunting. Yeah. And that's <laughs> that's a really good point. So vultures are extremely efficient at clearing carcasses off the landscape, which is really valuable. For one thing, it reduces disease. Mm -hmm. The main way it reduces disease is that the longer a carcass sits out, the more chance there is that diseases are going to grow and bacteria are going to spread and multiply. But also, every animal that shows up at a carcass is a potential carrier of disease. Yes. So if a carcass sits out there for weeks and 50 animals come visit it, that's a lot of opportunity for disease to spread. Vultures clear the carcasses out quickly, which helps to reduce that chance. But also, their bodies are deadly to a lot of diseases, so they are actively removing disease from the environment. They are they they take in pieces, and what they poop out has a lot less disease in it. Yes, they are an end point <laughs> for that spread of disease. I even saw one article that referred to vultures as the soap of the savannah. Because <laughs> I've heard them called like the garbage people yeah. and like the the sanitation team. The soap of the, the savannah. Soap of the savannah. That's a, <laughs> that's a good PR team right there. There you go. <laughs> vultures also outcompete pest species like rats, things that uh, could overrun an area with a lot of carcasses and can also be vectors of disease. Mm hmm they also distribute nutrients very efficiently because a vulture eats some carcass and then goes flies off a hundred kilometers in another direction. They are distributing nutrients around the ecosystem, much like elephants and other large animals do. And uh, because vultures eat basically everything, I saw one article that referred to them as true apex carnivores. Oh, yeah. Because they eat Every other animal, yes. <laughs> they eat lions and they eat hyenas. <laughs> <laughs> they know what everyone tastes like. Exactly. <laughs> that also makes them excellent indicators of ecosystem health. 
If there's a problem in your ecosystem, vultures are going to feel it. Another thing that vultures are really handy for doing, so we just were talking about how vultures are way better at finding carcasses than other animals. Other animals will follow vultures. Yeah. I mentioned earlier, that's the sight of circling vultures in the sky. A lot of other animals have learned to spot that and go find the carcass that they're circling. Yeah, that that is the bat signal for scavengers. Yes, that's the death signal. <laughs> Jackals are known to do this. Hyenas are known to do this. Here in the New World, black vultures and king vultures will follow turkey vultures. Yep. Because turkey vultures are so good at finding carcasses. So, because of this, I've also seen vultures referred to as keystone species of the scavenger community. Yeah. That they make other scavengers more successful by helping them find these things. They're the middle of the wheel that... Everyone else spokes off from vultures. (laughs) They are the core of the scavenger community. Man. Vultures. Now, along those lines, here's another fun fact. Now, I'm going to, this is going to be a one-two good news, bad news kind of thing. So I'm going to tell you something that's awesome, and then I'm going to follow it up with something that's not as great. But I've also seen it pointed out that not only can vultures lead other scavengers to carcasses, but when poachers kill big animals they're not supposed to, Vultures have been known to lead the authorities to the kill. Yes! Although you killed a rhino and took its horn, vultures will be used as a signal for authorities to go find it. The flip side, the bad side of that, is that that incentivizes poachers to kill vultures. Yeah. Because uh, they're just terrible people all around. Yeah, because those are, those are actual monsters. <laughs> <sighs> now, one other really fun point uh, about... Vulture ecology and vulture specialization is that vultures are so good at this that it has led some scientists to ask the question, could other animals even do this as well as vultures do? And in particular, this tends to revolve around that first attribute that I talked about, flight. Yep. A number of research discussions have cropped up around the question of, could you be a dedicated obligate scavenger who lives on the ground yes i remember this came up when one of the times that the hubbub around t-rex as a scavenger we've talked about this on the podcast before t-rex did both it's not a real debate but i remember this coming up at one point where people were like well could an animal on the ground even be primarily a scavenger like that could they be efficient enough to leave that lifestyle and some people think that they couldn't yeah Uh, The main reason is that the cost versus travel in vultures, in animals that can fly, is just so good that you can cover so much ground with using so little energy that that really allows you to be efficient. Also, if you're going to be a scavenger, there are some benefits to being small Mm -hmm. because then you don't need as much food. With vultures, not only do they get to be large, but they can compensate for the large factor with all these other things that they benefit from being large. So they're better flyers, they're better for competition, and they can cover enough ground to feed their large bodies. And another thing that I've seen pointed out is that vultures actually have uh, suffer this trade-off. Most vultures aren't good at killing things. Mm -hmm. They don't have the feet for it, they don't have the mobility for it, So vultures really are often dedicated to scavenging. There is a bit of a trade-off between scavenging and hunting, but arguably terrestrial mammals don't have to worry about that. 
like what makes a good scavenging hyena or lion or leopard or whatever also works for a hunter. So there may not be a selective pressure to do one over the other. It might be that, yeah, your body works for both, so there's no reason to specialize. Yes, there's not going to be a huge benefit to only focusing on carcasses because if you have sharp teeth that can kill, well, those can also tear through dead flesh. Yes, exactly. You're going to have to eat the thing you kill anyway, so you have the teeth to eat it, whether it's pre-dead or dying. Yep. So for a variety of reasons, some have proposed that it might not even be possible for a non-flying species to be as good at this as vultures. And if it is theoretically possible for a land, a stuck on land species to do it, it probably isn't possible for them to do it in a world where vultures exist. Yes, with that competition. (laughs) Because vultures are so good at it. Even if you could be a super scavenger jackal or something, by the time you get there, 84% of the carcasses are gone because vultures are just so good at this. Well, and not only are they just very efficient, but they've also got the best vantage point an animal can have when looking for stuff. We call it a bird's eye view for a reason. Yeah. Not only for sight, but also smell. Like, yeah, you can just take in so much more information from up there if you have the senses to compensate for the distance. Yeah, well, it's like Superman sitting up in the upper atmosphere just absorbing data from below. Exactly. So I I wonder as well if even if you have the nose of a bear, are you going to be able to sniff out the same area that a turkey vulture could? Like, can you even compete just because you're, you're too far down? You're too close to too many smells. It's it's a very interesting concept to think of how specialized they are at it and why they're able to be. Like what it is about being a bird that allows them to do this job as well as they can. Yeah. Now in the second half of our discussion, we are going to go into the past and talk about vultures through time. But real quick before we get there, there is one other note that we should make while talking about vultures and their place in ecosystems, and that is the sad note that vultures are an extremely endangered group of birds. Yeah, yeah, they are. I have heard vultures referred to as the most threatened group of birds in the world. More than half of vulture species today are threatened with extinction. Several species have experienced catastrophic declines in the last several decades, some of them losing up to 70 or 80% of their population over just a few generations. And vultures don't reproduce quickly, which also makes them more vulnerable. Yep. A lot of this comes from persecution from humans. Vultures get the same sort of treatment to an extent that snakes and sharks get. Despite them being awesome and beneficial, people don't like vultures, especially in certain parts of the world. Yes. Habitat destruction... Uh, Loss of food. Mm -hmm. So the fact that a lot of large animals today are also in population declines removes food from vultures. But the number one often cited reason for why vultures are declining so much is because of poisoning. Yep. Vultures are extremely susceptible to poisoning. People will poison uh, large mammals. Yep. So for example... Sometimes uh, farmers in some parts of the world will poison livestock carcasses to get back at the carnivores that eat them, right? The hyenas or the wolves or whatever it is you're trying to keep away. 
but that poison then kills the vultures that show up. Uh, I saw one uh, cited instance in 2013, and this was, I think this was an intentional let's get vultures, let's to, to intentionally poison vultures. In 2013 in Namibia, a single elephant carcass that had been poisoned killed 600 vultures. Yep. They are extremely susceptible. And the most, uh, this might be the most famous example, it's the one that I saw come up more often, was uh, starting in the 1980s or 90s, uh, farmers in South Asia started using a drug called diclofenac to treat cattle. Mm-hmm. It, it treat, I think it's an anti-inflammatory. It does some beneficial things that are great for cattle to, to overcome various conditions. But this same drug causes kidney failure in vultures. So when the cattle would die, the vultures would descend on it and eat it and then die. This drug is directly linked, I have seen in several references, to certain groups of South Asian vultures that saw population declines of over 95%. Vultures are at, like we said, they are at the end of the food chain. Yep. So anything that's wrong in that ecosystem goes their way. And people putting poisons or drugs in wildlife or in carcasses or in livestock has been really detrimental to vultures. Well, and I've also heard of them having issues with uh, buckshot, mm-hmm. of the pellets of shotgun shot right. so getting if you lodged shoot, If you shoot a deer or you mm-hmm. shoot a zebra or whatever. And then leave the carcass there with all that in it, that they mm-hmm. end up swallowing those little bits of metal and that that metal accumulation can also cause health issues. Yeah. And as you can imagine, loot, because of all the stuff we just talked about, losing vultures is bad. Yes. Loss of vultures has been linked to spreads of disease. Uh, I've seen reports specifically in India, although I'm sure this has happened elsewhere, of reports of declining vultures being linked with increasing populations of feral dogs. Yeah. Because they have something to eat. So these other scavengers become more common. Feral dogs, rats. In At least in India, the increasing numbers of feral dogs have also been linked to increasing spread of rabies. Yep. So losing vultures is not only a shame because they are living creatures that are awesome and fascinating and we don't want to kill all of them, but also it comes back around and is actually harmful to ecosystems and even to people. Well, and and on the feral dog note, not to, to, you know, uh, poo-poo on dogs because I love dogs, but dogs are one of the most deadly predators on the planet because we've domesticated them and taken them everywhere. Right. Dog attacks kill huge numbers of people every year it just doesn't make it to the news because we don't find them scary like Cujo did not do as well as Jaws for a reason (laughs) yeah and so like but dogs are incredibly dangerous animals yeah to people and to wildlife yes so that's all we're not going to go into any more detail on conservation of vultures but if you want to learn more we'll put some uh, links in the blog post and we encourage you to go down the rabbit hole a bit of vulture conservation efforts. There are a lot of good efforts out there that are helping with vultures, but... And there have been it, some success stories. Yes. So, like, it's not all bleak, but, no, they're yeah. in trouble. Every now and then we do a, an episode about a group of animals where cause every animal group in the world, there is a conservation discussion to be had. Absolutely. Everything is in danger one way or the other. But every now and then we do an episode on a group of animals where it would honestly be irresponsible of us... Not to point out that, yeah, vultures are are having a really hard time. Yes. Now, like I said, that 
uh, just about wraps up our discussion of vultures in the world today. So in the latter half of our discussion, we are going to rewind the clock and look back in time and talk a bit about what the fossil record of vultures looks like and some of the particularly interesting examples of vultures and their cousins from deep time. Yay. Just as vultures today, living species, are found in several continents all over the world, vulture fossils are also known from the same continents all over the world. They are quite widespread. But vultures are birds. They're big birds. They're unusual birds, but they are birds, and they suffer from the same condition that most birds suffer from, and that they don't tend to fossilize very well. Yeah, that they're made out of balsa wood. They are. Though Those bird bones are great for withstanding the stresses of flight and everything. Yep, yep. But once you're a dead body, those bones fall apart pretty quick. Yeah, <laughs> there's a reason you can bite through a chicken bone and not, like, injure yourself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, like a lot of birds, vulture remains tend to be bits and pieces. A lot of vulture remains are hard to identify. They're not particularly substantial. There are some exceptions. There are some really well-known fossil vultures including some whole skeletons, both in the New World and the Old World. Cool. Vultures are pretty famously known from cave deposits. We talked about stuff like that in episode 112. And asphalt deposits. We talked about stuff like that in episode 67 about the La Brea Tar Pits. That makes sense. If it can trap predators, it makes sense that would trap scavengers. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, La Brea is a, we talked about in that episode, it is a predator trap. Things die in the asphalt and then carnivores come by to pick it up. Yeah, vultures absolutely are going to catch them that way. Just picturing him landing on it and be like, oh no. Uh oh. <laughs> Let's start with old world vultures. Now, genetic estimates place the origins of new world vultures and the hawks, eagles, etc. group back around 60 million years ago or older. Although the modern groups are thought to be much younger, I've seen numbers like between 10 and 20 million years old. So the broader groups that include vultures have been around for most of the Cenozoic era, almost back to the end of the Cretaceous. The recent, the, the modern groups are more recent, more like our modern groups of mammal carnivores and things like that. Fossils of vultures, both Old World and New World, go back to the Oligocene. So over 25 million years ago. Let's start with Old World vultures. The oldest Old World vultures are from Asia in the Oligocene, though the oldest ones aren't necessarily part of the modern groups. They may be ancient cousins. Most records of vultures in the Old World are referred to the group Gypinae, or as I said before, sometimes Aegypianae, which is the one that includes your famous Saharan African vultures and your Himalayan vultures and things like that. The other old world group, Gepetanae, which is your bearded vultures, your palm nut vultures, and your Egyptian vultures, are known in the Pleistocene, uh, so the last couple million years, but are very rare older than that. Okay. So the fossil record of vultures in the old world is mostly that one larger group. But the smaller group, the Gepetanae, have a very rich fossil record in North America. Really? Yeah. So today they are an old world group, but in the past they were known in North America. They are known pretty well between the early Miocene to the late Pleistocene. 
So going back as far as 16 million years ago or so, all the way up to 12, 13,000 years ago. Wow. The end of the Ice Age. They are known all across the United States, and they've been identified as either belonging to that modern group, Japetene, or close cousins or ancestors to that group. There are also some of the other Old World vultures found in North America. So both groups of modern Old World vultures have a fossil record in North America. Very interesting. Most of these are identified as scavengers, possibly hunters. That can be really hard to tell in the fossil record, especially when you often have fragmentary remains. Well, and, and as we mentioned, there are some that do a bit of both. Yes. So you could have had one that was kind of 50-50 and doing a, a bit more of hunting than we would expect, but still really good with carcasses. Generally speaking, groups of old world vultures seem to radiate, so they increase in their diversity in the Miocene epoch, around the same time we see expanding grasslands. Makes sense. This is a common trend. We talked about this in episode 38, and it has come up in other episodes that when grasslands spread, a lot of groups of animals did really well. Horses, for example, episode 76. And you can absolutely imagine that vultures not only feed on the animals that did really well in grassland times, but also a nice wide open area is great for finding carrion. One well, and one of the responses a lot of groups that we saw in a lot of groups to grasslands was to get bigger. Yes. That horses got bigger and a lot of grassland animals are typically larger and large animals are good for vultures. Yes, they leave behind large bodies. Mm-hmm. And indeed, vultures throughout history are sometimes linked to what's going on with large herbivores. So it's been suggested that some old world vultures might have moved from Asia into Africa around the same time that your big horses, your equids, uh, your bovids, a lot of your big mammals did, because they're following that food source. Similarly, throughout history, where large herbivores dwindle or grasslands disappear and are replaced with other habitats, that is also sometimes linked to vultures leaving or dwindling or disappearing, notably at the end of the Pleistocene. Yeah. At the end of the Ice Age, when we have our episode 25, megafaunal extinction, we lose a lot of large mammal herbivores, and we also see losses in vulture populations, right? That's about the time that those old world vultures in North America disappear. Yep. Possibly because they're running out of food. Because it's not so much that there's not dead stuff to eat anymore, but if it's itty bitty thing, like rabbits dying, that's right. not the same as a buffalo or a mammoth (laughs) and like we said at the top scavenging is tough because carrion is widely dispersed it's it's not particularly predictable and the less big things there are dying the worse that situation becomes Mm -hmm. the harder and harder it becomes to rely on there being another one soon enough for you to eat moving on to new world vultures in the fossil record the family cathartidae and their extended family also oldest ones are oligocene so up in the 25 30 million year old range all right they are known in north and south america we have fossils of modern species as well as extinct species there are at least a few cathartids so new world vulture fossils known in the old world cool so i saw records of at least one i saw at least one record in france and one in mongolia so the old world new world split It really is a modern thing. Yeah. 
That that is something that exists today, but they have been on the other sides of the world, both groups, in the past, which is kind of cool to know. Well, and it's it's also, the split today very much seems like it could be a, a actual distinction because it's also group by group is split between... Right, they're related to each other in those groups. Well, it feels like uh, Old World and New World primates. Yes, exactly. It's like, yeah, that is, your ancestry follows that. And it does seem that New World vultures... Their history originates and is mostly in the New World, and Old World mm-hmm. vulture groups originate in the Old World, and they mostly are found in the Old World. So that is, kind of seems like that's the foundation of it. Yes, but that throughout history, it did not maintain that way. Yeah, they spread back and forth. And, and like, if, if we had one or two Old World groups here in the New World, or vice versa, that wouldn't seem so weird, but it's, it is very cool. When we, it's another example of the past not always matching up with what we see today, that today is not the set uh, conditions. That North America was a hotspot for old world vultures. Yeah. Which is cool. Uh, Also, similarly, I've seen discussions uh, suggesting that new world vultures suffered at the end of the Pleistocene. Uh, I've seen this brought up with condors in particular. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much direct evidence there is of this, but... Uh, I've seen people discuss the idea that condors are large scavenging birds and that losing large herbivores at the end of the Pleistocene might have led to dwindling populations and maybe set up condors for the situation they're in now. Yeah, that the fact that we don't have pachyderms. Yeah, there's no elephants to eat in this part of the world anymore. <laughs> and that you, you may be too big now, condors. <laughs> <sighs> now, on the subject of New World vultures, there is another group a famous extinct group uh, closely related to New World Vultures. They are not, uh, as far as I've seen, typically considered cathartidae, but cathartiforms, mm-hmm. closely related. This is an extinct group called the Teratornithids, or the Teratorns. These are relatives of modern New World Vultures that are often depicted as similar to modern New World Vultures, And they have a lot of the features that we see in modern New World vultures, but they are no longer around. This group is known from the Oligocene all the way to the late Pleistocene in both North and South America. So again, this is a group that we just lost 10,000 years ago or so. There are several different species, a number of different genera in this group. But I'll talk about the two most famous genera. Teratornus mm-hmm. and Argentavis. Yep. Uh, if you've listened to the podcast before, you may have heard Argentavis. And even if you haven't listened to the podcast, Teratornus merriami is a species of teratorn vulture that is one of the best known ancient vultures in the fossil record. This species is known from over a hundred complete skeletons. Wow. Uh, all in the Pleistocene, so the last couple million years all across the U.S., but mostly the La Brea Tar Pits. Yeah, Like we just said, if anywhere is going to catch the whole skeleton of a vulture, the La Brea Tar Pits is going to be the place to do it. The ancient flypaper. Yes. (laughs) One of the things that stands out about Teratornis, of course, and this comes up anytime you look these up, the Teratorns are not only typically referred to as extinct vultures, but as giant extinct vultures. They're big. Teratornis is big. Estimates for the wingspan of Teratornis range three and a half to almost four meters. So 11 to 12 feet and up, uh, which is bigger than any modern condors. 
and Teratornis uh, weight estimates go up over 20 kilograms, or around 50 pounds. These were big birds. That's that's so much bird. Often, Teratornis is compared to condors. That they probably they're similar size. They're a bit bigger. They probably lived like condors. Although there has been some studies that have suggested that they may have been more active hunters. Yeah. That their skull. I saw. I've seen some references to. Some studies that wonder if their skulls wouldn't be as good at tearing flesh as modern vultures, uh, that they might instead have been swallowing prey whole. Yeah. Like we see some other birds do. So whether or not they were dedicated scavengers or full-on hunters, or whether they were, you know, who they were hunting like isn't entirely clear. What sized prey could a bird that big swallow whole? Just wait. Oh. I've got a note about that. Oh, I'm nervous. <laughs> because there's the other species. Now, Argentavis magnificens has come up on the podcast before. Way back, you know, 75 years ago when we did episode 37.5, <laughs> to date our only half episode, was on more birds. And one of the groups within that episode was giant flying birds of the past. And one of the two examples we talked about was Argentavis magnificens, one of the largest flying birds of all time. So if you've listened to that episode, you will be familiar with this information. Argentavis is known from Argentina. In the Miocene, around six million years ago, Argentavis is huge. Yep. Estimates for wingspan of around seven meters, <laughs> so oh. over 20 feet. Which is this? Which is a good size for a pterosaur? Yes, like this is getting up to in the category of just truly giant flyers. These are small aircraft sized. That is very big. Argentavis's skull alone is over half a meter long, <laughs> around two feet. It's estimated to have weighed seventy kilograms, so over a hundred and fifty pounds. But clearly a flyer. Mm-hmm. Not one of the largest birds in existence, one of the largest flying birds. They have sturdy bones. They have large, strong wings. It's been suggested that they were probably using them for soaring instead of flapping, like we see modern large birds and, and vultures do today. As we've said before, large size is really good for flying. It makes you really efficient at soaring. It reduces drag. It gives you more momentum while you're gliding. There has been a lot of discussion with Argentavis about how it got off the ground. Yep. This is always the big question when you have a big bird. It's not so much how do you stay up there, because staying up there is actually pretty easy once you're up there. You're gliding around on thermal currents and whatever. It's getting up there. So Argentavis has been involved in these discussions. Some have suggested they would have had to jump off of cliffs. Others have pointed out that they could have run down slopes Mm -hmm. like albatrosses do today. Uh, one way or another, they were getting into the air. Well, These I, were impressive big birds. I've heard that, uh, I think it was with condors that I heard this, that many of them will take off facing into the wind. Mm-hmm. And that the wind can help create almost enough lift for them to take off like from a standing. Like that, it, mm-hmm. Their wings are so good at creating lift that if there's air movement, they they can take off oh, yeah. much more easily. Yeah, that's so, pretty cool. So now just picturing them just facing into the wind and just... Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like letting go of a kite. Yes. Argentavis, also uh, possibly a scavenger, would have been good at it for all the reasons that modern vultures are probably good at it. Also could have been hunters like the other, like we said with Teratornis. 
I did see a reference, and I think we mentioned this in episode 37.5 because I just copied all my notes over to this. Yep. Where I've seen it said that if they were swallowing prey whole, the skull of Argentavis is big enough to swallow a hair-sized animal. Yeah. A rabbit. A big rabbit. In one. Just down the gullet. That's what I was picturing, is that and, these things just eating cats. <laughs> and some of you might be going, well, rabbits aren't that big. Google hairs. Yes. Google how big a hair. That's, it's bigger than you might think it no, is. No, these could eat your cat. <laughs> yes. This is a cat-eating animal. Or your chihuahua. <laughs> I was about to say, do you have a dachshund? Well, <laughs> this is going to swallow it like a hot uh, dog. A nice long swallow. <laughs> so we do have fossil examples of modern groups of vultures, modern species of vultures in recent stuff, ancient groups. And totally extinct groups. These teratorns, a famous extinct group of vultures. There are some famous vulture finds. Like I said, the La Brea Tarpits is famous for having lots and lots of vultures. One other that I want to mention because it's so cool, and I knew I was going to talk about this because it came up in episode 131 mm -hmm. about volcanoes. The pyroclastic flow vulture. Oh, yeah. This was a study in 2014 that identified fossil remains in Italy from the Pleistocene of a pyroclastic flow. So a pyroclastic flow is basically the avalanche of ash and rock and glass that comes down the side of a volcano. A pyroclastic flow in Italy that preserves within it a 3D shape of a vulture that was preserved inside the flow. This study did a CT scan, I think, and created a 3D model of the shape preserved within this flow, which preserves the complete head and neck, and it is so finely preserved that it even includes the beak, the places where the feathers stuck into the skin, huh. the tongue, which was sticking out, and the first fossil record of the nictitating membrane of the eye. Whoa! Which is, I believe that's the third eyelid, as you normally hear it called. Yes! So this is a vulture preserved by a volcano to exquisite detail. I think it was in this art, the, the, the paper that says preserved better than Pompeii. Yeah. Wow. A fantastic <laughs> fossil specimen that happens to be a vulture. That's insane. It's also a cool one because it suggests there's no evidence of burning of the remains, so it suggests that this may have been a cool pyroclastic flow. Oh, yeah, yeah, Which yeah. is a really weird thing to think about. That's bizarre. Yeah. Man. That, that, as we've said before, the more tragic the fossil, the better the paleontology. Yeah. Sorry, buddy, but, oh, I'm so <laughs> glad you got hit by that flow. Way to go. <laughs> Another area where vultures come up in the record through time is in archaeology. Oh, that makes sense. Archaeologists often have to, uh, they're finding vulture bones, but vultures act as bone accumulators. Yeah. We've talked about this in the past. In episode 112, we talked about how animals that use caves, especially predators and, and birds of prey and things, will gather the remains of their prey in the cave, and it creates a nice little treasure trove for us to find. I think we talked about that in episode 109 about hyenas, because mm -hmm. they do that kind of thing. Vultures will do this too. So we will get vulture accumulations of animal remains in the, in the archaeological record especially, and different vultures have different habits. So Ooh. depending on the species of vulture, there will be different signatures to their accumulations. Oh, that's neat. I found one study from 2011 
where the entire study was dedicated to how to identify the remains of bones left by bearded vultures. <laughs> because, as we mentioned, bearded vultures feed on bones, they collect bones, but they also break bones. Yep. Which means you can get bones that are broken in the archaeological record that have been broken by vultures. And if you've heard us talk about archaeological stuff before, this is a big deal. Broken bones are a big deal for archaeologists <laughs> because broken bones can be broken by people. That's often one of the like, oh, evidence of humans dealing with bones and butchering animals. Yeah, and modifying the bones. Yes, here's damage on bones. And every time this comes up, there's always the question of, all right, well, could it be that a rock, a cave-in broke these bones? Mm -hmm. Could it be that a hyena bit these bones? Like, what's the difference? This study is entirely dedicated to if bearded vultures broke a bunch of bones, what do those bones look like? Yes! So that we don't confuse them with human broken bone remains. <laughs> Was this a civilization or just birds? Yes. <laughs> I've also seen uh, some writings about the deep history of the relationship between humans and vultures. Mm -hmm. So some of this is more speculative, but early hominins were predators and scavengers. So people, uh, I've seen some point out that Early hominins might have followed vultures to carcasses just like other predators do today. Yeah. Like even our species may have relied or our ancestors may have relied on vultures in the past. And then on the flip side, when humans started domesticating large herbivores, that probably also helped vultures out. Yep. That it gave them more food to deal with, which reminds me of our discussion in episode 134 about how vampire bats have really benefited from domestication of large mammals. Yeah, we we like to help out uh, in our early history, uh, the cool flying weirdos. Yes, <laughs> we used to be so good. Yeah. Oh. Vultures uh, ultimately, of course, became incorporated into myths and symbolism of ancient and modern cultures. Yeah. To this day, vultures are still parts of various mythological ideas or symbolic ideas. They are associated with death and with nature and with things like that. Well, I remember as a kid, you know, so especially for like Halloween decorations and like Looney Tune cartoons, so often vultures would be shown in like graveyards yeah, to represent death. And then I remember it wasn't until way later on that I looked and went, wait, what? Why would a vulture be in a graveyard? That makes zero sense. Also, that's definitely like an African, <laughs> like long looping neck vulture. Right. With the, the ring of feathers around its shoulder. Like, that's definitely... You just watched The Jungle Book and made that vulture. Yeah, exactly. And you're putting it in, like, a Transylvanian graveyard. <laughs> it's like, what? I don't understand. And yeah, they're just symbolism now. Yes, exactly. I did find one interesting story. This was actually an NPR report from 2012 about a modern community and their relationship with vultures. So this is a Parsi community in Mumbai in India. Uh, these are people of Zoroastrian faith. And as part of their cultural rituals, their funeral rituals, they do the, uh, some of it is the, what we would expect from a funeral of, you know, paying respects and things like that. But they don't bury or cremate remains. They leave the bodies out. Yes. Uh, usually in a designated spot. I think they may have said a high elevation spot, but a designated place where they lay out the bodies of the dead 
to be returned to nature, and the way they are returned to nature is vultures. Yeah, I have heard about that, which is so fascinating. Yes. And let me bring it back around to sad stuff. This community has been struggling with these rituals since vultures have been in decline in that part of the world. Uh, Since the 1980s, uh, vulture populations have dropped so much, and what they've noticed, and this is simultaneously a sad story for these people, but also another example of how unique vultures are. Other birds and other scavengers do not do the job anywhere near as well as vultures do. Yep. Vultures could clear these remains in hours, right? But without vultures, it can take days and weeks because they're just so good at it. And this has actually led to some consternation among these people because that not only is that disrupting the ritual, but now the bodies of the dead are laying out for longer and they're decomposing and that some people find that disturbing yeah that's not how it's supposed to be that's not that's not what the intent was yes and there have even been efforts to uh, use technology to kind of get the same effect so they've used solar concentrators to like heat up the area so that things decompose faster but even still it takes way longer than what vultures could have done yeah And I think this is just such an interesting example of not only how human culture interacts with vultures and and they with human culture and also driving home just how unique and specialized vultures are at their lifestyle. And again, a reminder that these are birds that are in trouble and their plight affects everything around them yes the whole ecosystem uh, anyone who shares that environment with vultures is impacted by those declines in their populations because of just how significant they are as a force Mm -hmm. in their habitats yeah it's it's not often that you can get just a very clear here is a extremely relatable and and one-to-one example of how a decline of a, a species or group is having direct effects because very often it, it can get kind of abstract when you're trying to explain mm-hmm. why why would losing spiders you know be actually very bad right you know why would losing wolves be actually very bad but with vultures it it's pretty immediately clear of like no if you move vultures out of an area that body is gonna be there yeah that elephant carcass is just gonna be there. For a long time. We can check on it next month. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's very clear how effective they are. And this is that is an example where it is directly affecting a group of people fundamentally, you know, and a fundamental aspect of their their lives. Yeah. And all that to drive home this point of just how fascinating vultures are. Yes. This is a group of animals that has evolved into this incredible niche multiple times, mm-hmm. have evolved to fill this ecological role that they do so much better than everybody else. It's really incredible. Well, I they're, think they're such a cool group of birds. They really are. And I think the the way my mind is really framing it is that so often if you ask someone what is a vulture the response would be it's a bird that eats dead stuff yeah but it's it's so much more than that yeah like it's not just that they eat dead stuff they are the best at (laughs) eating dead stuff they are 
specialists. They are just so good at it. Finding dead stuff, eating the dead stuff, getting to the next dead stuff. Yep. Leading other things to dead mm-hmm. stuff. Clearing and de-diseasifying yeah, the de- dead con- stuff. Decontaminating. Decontaminating. They, uh, they, uh, they, they, they fulfill this incredible service. Yes. To their environment. And once again, I know that, that for a lot of people, they aren't pretty birds, but I think they're just some of the coolest looking birds. They look so cool. Out there, just purely aesthetically. They look awesome. They look very cool. They look like someone was designing fictional birds and wanted to make their birds still look like realistic birds, but also look super cool. Yeah, absolutely. So in the blog post, we will have pictures of some of our of some of the best looking vultures. Uh, also links to more information. Uh, well, I'll link to that NPR story for anyone who wants to read more about it. But before we finish up our discussion for the episode, we have one last thing to do, and that is our patron question. At a certain level on Patreon, our subscribers get the opportunity to submit questions for us to answer here on the podcast. And as we've mentioned before, one of the great things is that we have received enough Patreon questions these days that we can pick similar questions to the main topic of the episode. Will, please deliver our patron question. Happily. This question is from Melissa, who asks, What defines the difference between a scavenger and a decomposer? Obviously, I know the difference between a vulture and a mushroom, but on a scale of things that eat dead things, where is the line? This is a great question. Absolutely. Uh, Extremely relevant to today's conversation. Melissa even put the word vulture in the question. Right? Great. (laughs) Thanks for that. Uh, So the short answer is the line isn't, it's not, there's not so much a line. No. As usual in nature, it's kind of a blurry area of similarity. Yeah. I did pull together some definitions, uh, and I'm going to uh, quickly explain the difference between how these words are typically used. And I'm actually going to throw a third word in here. We're going to talk about scavenger, we're going to talk about decomposer, and we're going to talk about detritivore. Yep. Because these words are often used differently. The word scavenger typically refers to animals that consume the bodies of dead organisms. Yes. Vultures, hyenas, if, if there is a carcass on the ground and you're eating it, that's scavenging. Uh, This can also refer to herbivores. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Herbivores can be scavengers. You can scavenge dead plant bodies and such. Detritivores is a term that is usually used for animals that eat bits and pieces of organic matter. So bits and pieces off of bodies or feces. If you think of the ocean, for example, where on the seafloor there's always little bits of floating down from up above yeah, that marine snow the marine snow and it's some of its poop and some of its plankton and some of it's a piece of a fish that came off for some reason because detritus when we use it in our world that just means like litter like right. just garbage on the ground just random bits of stuff detritivores are eating those random bits this can be vertebrates it can be oftentimes invertebrates like arthropods yeah insects is where i hear it used very regularly things that are eating what you wouldn't consider a dead body but a piece of non-living organic matter a chunk that you pick up and eat decomposers is a term that often refers to organisms that break down the littlest bits of organic matter the most classic decomposers are fungi Mm -hmm. fungi bacteria One distinction I've seen proposed for this is that decomposers don't eat. Yes. That they're breaking down matter outside of themselves. Like a fungus does not 
take in a piece of matter. It doesn't ingest it. Yes, I was about to say, they don't have a digestive system like we do. They do what is called extracellular digestion. They are digesting it outside the body and then absorbing the nutrients. So you could say scavengers eat dead bodies, big pieces. They are animals that do that. Detritivores are typically small animals eating small bits and pieces of stuff, of organic stuff, but they are ingesting it. And decomposers are typically microbes that are digesting things outside of them and then absorbing the molecular remains. That being said, you will absolutely see these terms used across those barriers. Yep. Detritivores are sometimes just lumped in with decomposers. Scavengers are obviously contributing to decomposition. Mm-hmm. So kind of they are also acting as decomposers. Well, and if you are getting really picky on things, the vultures that don't pull pieces off the carcass but grab the bits around the carcass, Mm -hmm. it could be considered detritus. Yes. (laughs) Those are bits of non-living matter. Yes. I've seen some places, uh, when I was looking for examples online, I saw a couple websites that said scavengers eat big pieces that bre- and then break them into small pieces, that detritivores eat the small pieces and break them into tiny pieces, and then decomposers break down the tiny pieces. Yeah. And I think that as a general way to think about it, that's perfectly fine. That's not really... They're, they're, Melissa said, where's the line? There's not really a line. No. Uh, these are terms that are... You don't have to use them interchangeably, but also they are often used interchangeably. Yes. Or there's there's definite overlaps at the seams. Yes, exactly. Like where one meets the other, there's a lot of things where, well, you know, it is it are the beetles, you know, carrion beetles that mm-hmm. go into a body. Are are those would we call those scavengers, or would they typically get grouped in with other, you know, decomposer right. type thing like? Mm-hmm. And then if you want to get really ridiculous about it, the bacteria that are inside the guts of scavengers. Yeah. Are those decomposed? Yeah. So. It's, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's very similar to when we got on the topic of uh, parasitism. I'm like, couldn't you call a lion a parasite of a zebra? <laughs> if you wanted to be real specific. If you wanted to get real semantic that about That is it. a symbiotic relationship where one suffers and one benefits. <laughs> you know. It's it, these definitions are as technical as we can make them. Yes, but they can never actually be super technical when you're dealing with such a wide variety of things. So, in short, scavengers eat dead bodies. Detritivores eat bits and pieces of organic stuff, sometimes off of dead bodies. Decomposers break down at usually at the molecular level. Yes, organic remains, but they're all part of the same sort of system of recycling organic stuff. Yep. Thank you for that question, Melissa. That was an excellent question to put here at the end of our Vultures discussion. Very convenient. Thank you to all of our patrons. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to those who requested our Vultures topic. This was a ton of fun. This is so cool. As we mentioned, there will be a blog post on our blog. Link in the episode description. If you want to check out more photos and links for more information. Also, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode... Croc and Snake Month are coming up. They sure are. In June and July, so check out our social media channels. Check out our Discord. Check out our website. Check out our Patreon. We've got stuff that is coming up. You can find links to all the things I just mentioned in the episode description. Stay tuned for fun Croc-related stuff in June. And then even more fun Croc-related, Snake-related stuff in July. Yeah, you know. (laughs) We release episodes every fortnight. 
So stay tuned next for episode 140. Wow. 140. 140. We'll see what that's about. Stay tuned. Until then, go hug a vulture. Yeah. Go tell them you think they're they're cute and thank them for... Yeah, don't don't hug a vulture. Go thank a vulture. Go shout up into the sky. Yes. Words of encouragement. (laughs) (laughs) To find a turkey vulture out there and and give it some praise. Thanks for eating all the dead stuff. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.